Have we started? Are we officially started? Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Break Drink Podcast. I'm Jeff. I'm still Laura. And And, uh, and I'm Chris. So what happens? We have a newbie join us. Welcome, Chris Gillier. Join us for the chat. Thank you. Hey, Chris. Welcome. Thank you. Hey, welcome. Chris Gillier is coming from us, working at Macomb Community College, living up in the Motor City. He understands the classroom is a culture site where theoretical frameworks produce power. His scholarship and teaching has always addressed key issues of how mass media, digital technologies, and curricula and pedagogy create American ideas of blackness. So last year, Chris volunteered himself, or I volunteered him, to join us to share a talk about um, different issues that impact both policy, practice, and more with technology and learning in higher ed. So I asked him to come join us because he has some great things to say. And we might not, so we really need support on the Break Drink podcast. So welcome, Chris. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And again, uh, thanks for uh, the invitation to OLC. That was a, a it, was, it was pretty uh, scary, actually, but uh, it all it all worked out pretty well. He's cursing me now because he's been forced to go around and talk to others in the country, which is good because we need to share the story. What do you typically go to visit? Um, either spaces or institutions or organizations to talk about? Well, um, probably the most uh, prevalent or the most common thing people ask me to talk about um, what uh, has come to be known as digital redlining. Um, I may or may not um, have popularized that phrase. Uh, But what I'm I'm really interested in is is the ways that... um, tech policy, tech decisions, pedagogy um, disproportionately affects um, in, in bad ways um, people of certain races and classes. Um, so uh, along with questions of access, um, especially broadband access, and a lot of the assumptions people make about who has the internet, what kind of internet they have, and things like that. I think you'd be a good, great point because People assume if you have an online program or you have something that's mediated by technology, all your learners, well, and your staff and faculty can actually access, use, and optimize this. And makes tech- technology and learning makes everything great, but that's not always the case. Yeah, I've uh, in, in going around, I've found a lot of people. Uh, there's always the assumption, right, that everybody has the internet. Um, and uh, I mean, there's lots of different places you can look. Pew Research is one that um, talks quite a bit about this. The stats kind of don't bear that out. I mean, there's a good chance that uh, wherever you teach, there are some students uh, who are what they call cell phone dependent, who mainly get their, whose who's main source uh, outside of uh, their institution of internet access is their cell phone. Uh, you can imagine some of the problems that would create uh, in terms of doing work and accessing materials and, um, you know, uh, and so I, it's, it's something that people need to consider, even when doing something like designing a syllabus. Um, and I found that a lot of people are not considering it. So uh, I think it's, it's worth talking about. 
do you do you feel that um so so i was reading this one i don't know if this is an article but whatever laura sent to me um uh, on the common sense education side yeah. the, the yeah the the digital um redlining access and privacy mm-hmm. um and you you outlined some like some really usable stories about people who have access like they go to the computer lab to try to find things and they're they're blocked from them not knowing that they're blocked from them mm-hmm. uh, is that i don't want to say is that still happening but like is that what scale is that happening on i guess i should say well it's, that's actually a great question um now the the problem is that i mean it's happening all the time right now uh even i mean one of the problems is that we experience the web through our own eyes uh i mean this is it's like i mean this is sorry it, it seems like a, a like a common sense thing right but when when people are on the web they're typically not watching what someone else is doing right they're doing something so um you don't look over someone's shoulder to see what kind of google results they're getting or whatever and so the the effect of that is that um we don't know what we're not getting uh, and that is more true, the, the less uh, sort of web savvy someone is, you know, um, in terms of understanding issues of filtering and, and geofencing and uh, how different search engines work or how uh, different social media work, how they create engagement. Uh, you know, the, the, the short version is people don't, uh, are, are not really there's not a lot of mechanisms for us to see how other people are experiencing the web. Um, and so one of the, one of the things, one of the examples that uh, I think is really prevalent right now is um, if when you search Google, like Google's having all kinds of problems uh, with uh, white supremacists. And I mean, I think it's a problem uh, clearly by Google, by the way they're responding does not. But um, so there's a video going around on on Twitter right now that if you ask Google Home uh, if Obama is is, uh, planning a a coup, that Google Home will answer yes. Oh, is he? That's great. (laughs) Tell me more. I didn't know that. Well, uh, (laughs) Google Home says says he is, right? Or if you type in, you know, something like, did the Holocaust happen? You know, you get um, the top results are often... Uh, from white supremacist sites or, you know, the, the, uh, one of the really common and unfortunate examples, um, is that, uh, Dylan Roof, uh, the, the man who, who killed all the people in South Carolina, um, did a Google search for black on black crime. And when you do that, um, what you get is a bunch of sites that peddle, uh, racist theories. So... The way the way that the unfortunate thing right, is that um, people tend to use search engines as uh, as answer engines when they're really ad engines, right? Um, and or I do sometimes use it for spell check. Yeah, <laughs> or the thesaurus. But so most people don't they don't really understand. I, I don't know if it's fair to say most people. A lot of people, and a lot of people I run into, uh, and a lot of students, I mean, a lot of faculty as well, so not to dismiss students or diminish them in any way, don't understand that um, what what the function of a lot of these um, 
uh, platforms are, right? Which is not really to give you an answer, right? It's to keep you on, on there or to sell you ads or whatever the case may be. You bring up a so these, great point, though, like anyone can optimize and gamify that algorithm to say, I want to be top of the feed or I'm going to be the SEO and this is the correct link versus what someone else might get in Germany or in Thailand. It's like it's going to be a different feed level, different rank level because they right. choose. Right. And even, you know, even a less sort of pernicious uh, examples, um, if we talk about journal access or, or databases on, you know, on college campuses. And the other example I use all the time is uh, how uh, my wife teaches at University of Michigan. And uh, that's a big thrill for me for a lot of reasons. But one, because I can have the journal access that U of M has. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> right? true. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of search strategies or research strategies I have to tell my students is, you know, find out if you have a friend at a larger university um, and, you know, ask them to search something for you or bum their password off of them or, or whatever the case may be. I have never done that. Thank you, Michigan State and other schools. <laughs> no, I'm grateful that I'm positioned at two universities because my newly dubbed R1 school, UNT, does not have the access, but Royal Roads University in Canada does have a lot more access to journals or we use the hashtag I can has PDF and we are yeah, great yeah. friends from around the internets will um, send you the article you're looking for. You just put your, your, your email to send it to. Yeah. You know, and uh, students are really, my students have been really suspicious of this, right? <laughs> when I give this to them, they think that um, I'm somehow trying to trick them or, Perhaps it's illegal or something like that. I thought you were going to say that you recommend your students marry someone that goes to a, a different institution. <laughs> how are you, how are else going to get inter-institutional interaction, cross-collaboration? Yeah, absolutely. It's like an academic uh, academic citizenship of sorts. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, to the extreme. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm adjunct faculty on two different campuses, so that – I. Which I'm happy to do that, but I'm also happy to have their library access. Yeah, I mean, it makes a huge difference. Um, and uh, again, I mean, part of the, the issue with this is um, my students, when they get to me, you know, typically they're, they're first year college students and no one's even told them this. Um, so they, to this point, have been like a lot of the that... Uh, the uh, architecture of the web or of journal access, things like that, is invisible. So when things don't pop up, a lot of times they just assume that those things don't exist or, um, you know, they don't know why they're being asked to pay for <clears throat> or things like that. Well, all that's really important information. Um, and I, I mean, but I think it contributes to some of the kind of walling off of information that of term digital redlining. Yeah. I think it's important, and I just had a conversation with a um, history teacher, a grade seven. He'd worked downtown Dallas at a charter school and is now in Plano. It's a different district with a little bit more affluence and um, access to technology themselves. And he couldn't do the same kind of lessons, but he had the same issues, whether it's in a small computer lab in Dallas or um, the kids are on their tablets in grade seven looking up a history project. So they Google find a person's name. They actually use Google instead of 
giving them some other options. They go to Google, they search the name, first link shows up and they start writing word for word the sentence. They don't even click the link. They just go, <laughs> this is the founder of XYZ and they'd go dot, dot, dot. Like they don't yeah. even finish the sentence. They do the little blurb up to the point. So forget about even clicking the link, see who it is, what kind of source it is. We need, like, we know we need to start younger because they come into our higher ed institutions and they have have no or have some basic like search functionality. So what what's real information? Forget fake news, but like, just what is good searching and what does that look like? Yeah, and also, I mean, we need to do a better job of holding these companies accountable. You know, one of the things I'm kind of working on or thinking about is the way you know. So Google. Right. I mean, they're always telling us, you know, how their algorithms and AI are are magic. Right. I mean, but, you know, they can't outsmart. I say can't. I mean, they won't. They they, they won't change things so that um, white supremacist, uh, you know, hate speech doesn't appear at the top of their um, search search results. And. You know, that's an interesting calculus for Google, right? I mean, my the way I understand it is that um, Google doesn't want to change because then there'll be the, they think it'll open the floodgates to people asking them to change things. Yeah. Um, you know. and, and they kind of hide behind freedom of speech of like, yeah. who are we to say that they're wrong of, yeah. Right, right. We just organize the world's information, right? We don't take any, uh, um, we don't make any claims to accuracy, right? But when you when you can sort of blame it on the algorithm, it it lets all kinds of things uh, take place, and um, lets companies absolve themselves of responsibility. I think that's changing as people become more aware of of how some of these things work, but it's changing pretty slowly. I thought that the the whole uh, Pizzagate uh, scenario would have changed a lot of this, right? Like someone actually walked into a, a pizza um, a pizza parlor in D.C. with kids there with a gun, with this whole conspiracy theory that they were involved in in um, child sex trafficking that was being done by the sorry I can't, I can't say that loud enough. Yeah, done by by the Clinton campaign. And John Podesta, like like that was like a real thing happening on the internet that led to to that issue, and like they're still kind of just going on as if that that wasn't a big deal. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, there's going to need to be um, a bunch of different uh, avenues to to resolution. Uh, I think, frankly, probably people need to start suing these companies more often. Um, we also need better people. Uh, well, yeah, um, <laughs> we need people in power who better understand some of these issues, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, the consequences are, are pretty real. Um, it's been like an afterthought. They they claim the technology isn't doing anything. It's neutral. When we know it, it's not. It has impact. Um, we need to make decisions around how they're regulated. What are some policies like? Why doesn't this come from our leg- legislative bodies and our institutions? Because I think there is an impact to how um, it impacts our society and our small societies at our schools, I think, deal with cyber bullying, cyber standing, um, trolling, harassment, both 
of faculty, staff, students, and, and we're just kind of letting that go by without saying something and doing something and saying, like, what's civil? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're seeing, for instance, I mean, a lot of uh, Uber is getting a lot of backlash for a lot of their uh, poor behavior. Um, yeah. And <laughs> bad, bad couple of weeks for Uber. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I just um, tweeted this out or retweeted this, but like, I hated Uber before it was cool. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> before it was cool, I hated them. Um, but uh, I mean, so and we've seen some cases where I mean, companies like Uber, companies like Facebook, they are uh, they are sensitive to public pressure. Uh, you know, they do change things if there's enough of an outcry. Um, but there needs to be more of it in, in, in certain instances. Yeah, it, it, it took a while, but Twitter eventually went in and uh, deactivated a lot of accounts um, from the hate speech group. Now, I don't know if they kept them from reactivating accounts. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen some of that. I mean, uh, you know, course they won't deactivate the big one that they yeah. should <laughs> right. um yeah that would be probably good for america um and <laughs> yeah. the world <laughs> no i th- i think you're right though like it's part of the leaders that should take responsibility but i think citizens have some right too and they can do some kind of voting and policing and whatnot with their feet. Like they should think about other areas and agencies to use. So let's not use that search engine named Google. They can use like DuckDuckGo or another search engine that um, affords some privacy, doesn't track everything you're doing to sell and monetize your good. Like we really have to make some efforts to use some non Google products, probably some non Apple products, um, some other ways that we text and share. Um, It takes a lot of work, but I think we have to think about that a bit more and do something with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the other thing I'm, I'm big into are issues of privacy. Um, So I uh, spend a lot of my time on the internet calling out i mean not that they're listening to me but it's it's fun for me you can anyway. now we have 12 people yeah. to listen to this one go let's list them but yeah calling out companies you know ed tech companies um social media companies for uh all the different ways that they've invented to invade our uh people's privacy and monetize it um so yeah, yeah i think i think we need to change some of our behaviors too in um I mean, so many people don't know what DuckDuckGo is or never heard of StartPage or, you know, wander around with their Bluetooth on all the time. You know, I mean, so there's there's a lot of different things people can't do to, to mitigate some of these damages. Um, I shared a podcast series. I don't know if you listen to Note to Self. No, I'm not familiar with it. It's a WNYC podcast um, radio show. They did a short series, a five-day challenge on the case for privacy and the privacy paradox. So they share things like, um, what does your phone know when you search for your identity? Uh, What do they know and how do they sell it back to us? And um, how do you get to be more anonymous in this world? And what's your own terms of service? So it's something I started doing with my first-year students, uh, undergrad and grad students. So they started thinking a little bit more about their digital 
self online and what they want to have private and what they could take back. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting one. And they have kind of like short episodes with a challenge each day and some resources that maybe we should share more. And we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes if people are curious and they want to become a little bit more anonymous out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And I, I think, I mean, my, in my experience, um, students actually do care about these things. I think it's a miss. Um, it's a misunderstanding of of um, young people to say they don't care about privacy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of sick of seeing people say that. But uh, I, in my experience, they do. I mean, it's just um, a lot of times people don't understand what maybe some of the ramifications are or know what alternatives we have, if any. So I have a. Um, I want to jump back real quick to the 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 redlining, um, specifically among like college campuses. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and if y'all are listening and you're not sure what redlining is, um, you really need to know. I'm I'm always shocked how many people don't know about this part of our history. Whenever I ask this in class, like how many of you have heard of redlining, only people whose families were affected by it are people who are aware that this thing happened. Um, and it started in the 30s. I would say unofficially went away in the 60s, but um, officially still here, <laughs> still with yeah. us in, yeah. in many in many ways. Um, but it was like a, it was very system. It was very systemic in, in like what neighborhoods could get loans or businesses and what neighborhoods couldn't. And they actually rated them as like like best desirable, um, hazardous, undesirable. Like they um, based on ethnicities of people living in these neighborhoods so i'm thinking about like students specifically um there's i I, and i guess we talked about this earlier like a huge like a level of access from someone going to university of michigan versus whatever community college is like around university of michigan Mm -hmm. um and and i'm not saying it's like as systemic as it was before but it's almost like inadvertently that way now is that we're giving people with the best education opportunities the most access to resources and people who are probably under-resourced um, going to education. And I'm a huge like supporter of community colleges, not to say those aren't valuable or su- supportive. They're, they're doing really the heavy lifting when it comes to um, equal access or diversity in education. Um, but they probably, the students do not have the same like level of like digital resources there. Right, absolutely, and uh, you know, I think, um, again, there there's several issues. I mean, part one of how this came to light to me is is some of the practices at my institution. Um, you know, one in that they're they uh, used to engage um, in filtering of their of the uh, of the uh, they used to have pretty heavy filters on the on the internet there. Um, and, stu- and students weren't aware of that. Students were not aware of that. Okay. Um, were, were faculty so, or staff aware of that? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, you know, and I don't, I hate to say this. I don't, I don't have a pleasant way to say this. Go Most on. people don't know how the internet works. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, like, um, so what happens it's a magic. lot of times, yeah, <laughs> is that when, when it doesn't do what you expect it to do, um, people have sort of internalized that and think maybe they did something wrong or 
um, you know, they just kind of move on to the next thing. So what was happening at our institution is, um, you know, and I mean, there's some, there's some, a longer history kind of about filtering and things like that, but most colleges don't do it or they, they don't filter material that's legal. Right. Um, Or they don't tell you. Yeah. Um, but so what would happen is, is, um, the, the, uh, the college, what they would just, they had set up a, a window that, that said, uh, this site is unsafe or something like that. Uh, it's not the exact language. Yeah. But it, it would say that the, the um, site had been blacklisted in terms of uh, having, you know, being infected with malware or something like that. That was not the case, really. They, they had just determined that um, it wasn't a material that people on a college campus should be accessing, which is not a decision I want IT making. Mm-hmm. What kind of um, sites were kind of on the blacklist? Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I mean, the, the common example I've used over and over is my students were doing uh, research on revenge porn. Right. And the, uh, the uh, filter acted as if the word porn didn't exist. So they just got all kinds of results um, concerning the word revenge and the television show revenge and things like that. But, um, I mean, you know, we have nursing classes, we have uh, religious studies classes. I mean, there's all kinds of, like, um, filters work pretty poorly. Um, they work poorly in that they keep out stuff that you you want to let in. And anybody with a modicum of um, technical skill and some investment can get by them. One of the things I found out uh, um, is that you could not get to a lot of stuff, a lot of, uh, um, I have tenure, so I was kind of able to do this. So one time I sat around just seeing what I could get to, like just doing some basic techniques, right? So it turns out that um, <laughs> you couldn't get to a lot of like bad stuff using um, Google, but if you use Bing, you could. So <laughs> however, how, yeah. I use however, Bing. <laughs> Right. I guess that they just decided no one used Bing. So there was a committee, and they sat around, <laughs> like, nah, no one uses Bing. Go for it. About that one. But a lot of even faculty didn't know that there were filters. Right? They just assumed that the network wasn't working properly, or that um, when in fact it was working just as it had been programmed to work, or that um, indeed the sites that they were looking for had been infected with malware or something like that. So it took a lot of education, um, both of faculty and students, and a lot of fights with the administration to get them to change that. Um, so it, you know, I think there's some, uh, I, yeah, there's not a good way to say this either. I, I think in terms of, uh, there's some very patron or patriarchal or paternalistic is the word I'm looking for notions about um, who could who could who can access or who should be able to access what kinds of information at what kinds of institutions. Um, I've found that bigger places or research one places or you know um, are a lot more open about their networks. I mean, obviously, you keep out things that are illegal. You keep out. Um, you prevent as much as you can copyright violations and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, I mean, if it's on a college 
college campus and it's legal, you should be able to access it. Well, I remember when I worked at the University of Texas, um, like Napster was the thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like early, like early days of Napster. And they were going after college campuses to block it. And like UT, and I could be, this is a while and things are fuzzy now. Um, I could be remembering this wrong, but I, I remember UT kind of saying like, look, like, like we're not in the umpire business. We're not calling balls and strikes on like what, like what they should be on. Like we're not going to go and just like block your sites or block your downloads and kind of took a stand on that. I also thought it was kind of like an, like when IT gets to that level, then IT has like a, a huge job, right? Like they have to keep up with these filters and like what sites are going to pop up that you have to block and what things you have to do. I just kind of thought their IT didn't want to get involved in keeping up with that those sites and illegal downloads and stuff. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those are pedagogical questions and academic freedom questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, bluntly, um, I don't want anybody who's not me deciding what my students get to look at in class. Yeah. Um, I mean... Uh, you know, that's sort of claiming a lot of power for myself. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, I think that faculty should make those decisions. Um, and, you know, not without any limits. Um, yeah. But I don't think I, that's not that should not be the job of IT. Again, you know, copyright violations, uh, illegal material. That's one thing. Um but, uh, you know, and again, filters, they're problematic because they keep out, they keep out a lot of poetry. They keep out portions of the Bible. I mean, yeah. you know, there's lots of things that you, um, lots of reasons they don't work. And also, I mean, um, in terms of academia, it's not necessarily what you're looking at. It's why you're looking at it, you know? <laughs> so there's, you know, I would often challenge my students to tell me something that legal that you shouldn't be looking at on a college campus. Like you couldn't, there couldn't be some academic reason for looking at that. Um, and so, that's a pretty tough one to answer. Yeah. Did you ever get a, get a good response for that question? <sighs> no. no. <laughs> yeah. But you should always funny. ask though. I think being, okay to step forward and ask the questions if you notice something speaking up is important even though it's sometimes uncomfortable and maybe puts you in an awkward situation with your administrative beans and powers or your supervisor yeah. that's kind of the role of faculty though right to make everyone else uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> oh i i i agree uh you know so i it's a, I think it's a bigger sort of the redlining and access issues is probably a bigger problem than many people recognize. Um, when I did the talk at OLC, I hadn't imagined that people would respond to it the way they did, but um, a lot of people have reached out to me about access questions at their own institution or, you know, even things about how to think about um, changing uh, the website so that it's better optimized for mobile or changing your syllabus so you don't um, have practices that assume a certain level of access for students, uh, things like that. I now ask how they access the course LMS because I think we make assumptions that they're all connected all the time. I have some lot of students are traditional on campus and they have access 
um, for different areas. They can borrow a device, they can go somewhere, but then I have a lot of people that are remote as a distance and they don't have the broadband to stream. They can't do like you do papers in English. And so how are they doing them on their mobile? And that's awkward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have students all the time who compose their papers on their phones. Wow. That's so much work. I hope their voice to text works well. Yeah. I, and I mean, and this is, this goes to, you know, some people, people say, well, you know, why, why do students have their phones out in class? You know, I mean, um, I have some ideas about that, <laughs> but I mean, I have, I, in the time I've taught, uh, at the, my current institution, I typically have, uh, several students per class who are actually composing their papers on their phone. Wait. Which though, though tedious, and I wouldn't want to do it. It's kind of amazing though that that it, that a phone can do like how powerful a phone is now. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of adaptation is pretty impressive, right? I, yeah. I mean, I we don't, I don't wish it on them, you know. I mean, I, like I, I I'd like for better circumstances, um, but that is amazing, right? and and it speaks to you know, how badly some people uh, uh, want to succeed and how, how much they're willing to, um, the lengths they're willing to go to. Um, so again, the, you know, the, the notion that like, people shouldn't have their phones out in class, I mean, uh, yeah. um, because it's, it's hard to know what someone's doing with their phone, right? We, and the, again, the analogy I always draw is like, if you go to, a, uh, go to an academic conference, how many people are on devices? Oh gosh! <laughs> if you could see what they were doing on their device, that would be better. Like I, per- I don't mind people on devices. Like I'd love to see, like, show the back of the screen and what they're really doing. You're like, mm. professionals are less people... likely to pay attention to the students. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so. Chris, what kind of advice would you give a staff or a faculty member that are wanting to think about how information is being shared or what kind of things they're doing to put in practice if they're using technology? Like, what are some one or two things people could do right now at their own campus or in their own role? Uh, I mean, as you said, I think it's important to ask people, you know, like, how are you accessing the course if it's, on, you know, or to talk to your students about some of these issues. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I mean, some people are very reluctant to do this, but there's, you can even help draw, you know, have your students help draw up the syllabus in terms of, uh, things like what kinds of tech expectations there are. Um, so the other thing I didn't mention, or only we mentioned in passing are questions about privacy. Um, and I think those are just as important given the ways that we know uh, information gets leaked or um, breached or uh, profiles get made about students. I think that it's, um, t- I think in, in professors and instructors have a, a pretty unique responsibility in terms of not forcing students. So first of all, understanding how students, um, what access they have but also not, you know, when we can avoid it, not forcing them to enter relationships with companies who are sucking up their data. Um, so, I mean, this sounds, I mean, it's, it's I'm going to say to say it, but you have to talk to your students. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I, I hate to say it because um, 
it sounds like sort of a common sense, although I know lots of people never do talk to their students about these things. Uh, the other thing is uh, there's tons of great reading out there right now about a lot of these issues. Um, uh, the two books I haven't read, but I really want to, um, are uh, Lower Ed and Paying the Price, but, but there's also... Um, Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Mass of Math Destruction and Frank Squally's Black Box Society. I mean, there's all kinds of books um, and resources that talk about these issues, about access, about uh, about the internet, about privacy, um, about the economics of being in college. Um, that I think people need to have a better understanding of. Um, you know, like to again go back to the phone example. Um, my students, I mean, I just got a new phone, so my students don't necessarily have a better phone than I do, but, um, <laughs> but, <they> do. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of them have the same one or a very similar one. And so because almost everyone has a smartphone, people again, tend to assume that everyone, um, it means the same thing to them. Right. Uh, so again, if my, if my phone drops in the toilet, uh, after I get off of this podcast, I'm just going to go to the store and get a new one. And it's an inconvenience and it's unfortunate, but it doesn't change my life at all. Yeah. Uh, that is not true for many students. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, I feel we need to have you back on just to talk about privacy at some point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'd, I'd love to. I, I feel like I talked too much. Um, no. But uh, I guess I was on here to talk a lot. So <laughs> no, we, yes. we just didn't want to talk. So thank you for filling the void. Um, if you're looking to catch Chris, we'll put his link to his website, his uh, Twitter handle that we recently learned where it's from is MySpace page. So that's great. His yeah. his icon. So good. Yeah, my picture, my AVA. Yeah. Wow. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give one. I want to give one podcast recommendation on the way out, based oh, yeah. on um, our podcast of, of, of last week. Um, so there was, there was a podcast called keeping it 1600 and it was done through the ringer and it was done from some previous Obama staffers after the election, they created their own, um, company called crooked media. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they have, and they have a, a couple like political podcasts going on and some of it, they have some activism around it. Like they don't want to just talk about politics. They want to like empower people, give people resources on, on what to do. Um, they launched another one recently called With Friends Like These. And I should know the person's name. I'm sorry, I don't uh, know the person's name who is hosting it. But it's a journalist from MTV News. And she's basically wants to have a conversation from people who voted on different sides um, for different reasons. Um, and and just, just have conversations with them about why they're doing this. She talks about the first one, how... Um, she's doing this on a podcast with strangers because it's too awkward and too hard to do this with family. And so it's been really good. The first one, it was like a Lutheran pastor, I believe in Minnesota. And the second one was uh, an African-American pop culture journalist for MTV News and who's a uh, friend of hers. And so um, so it, it's really interesting based on what we talked about last week and people processing things differently through this, and you know, one thing we didn't do was process this on behalf of other people. We were just selfish in how it affected us personally, and we'll get around to that um, eventually. But we need to—we're going to start with like how we felt immediately after 
somewhat immediately after the election um, before we kind of ex- expanded on. But um, I listened to the first two so far. I kind of recommend it, especially if you're kind of in that, like, I'm trying to still figure things out, though we're like two months after inauguration. Um, I think we'll be, we'll probably be in that place for a while. So, um, so it's, I, I recommend uh, taking a listen to that. I have one recommendation. I have more. We talk about podcasts all the time, Chris. We're big nerds because uh, that's mm-hmm. what we do. Um, if you haven't heard the new podcast from Channel Islands, University of California Channel Islands, hosted by Michelle Brukansky Brock, I was going to call her Brukansky. Um, she's doing the Human Eyes Z, and the first episode talks about on being first and first generation. She interviews her father and a couple of her students and gives a story of the narrative of being first generation then versus now, what that means. And I, I think it's going to be a great one. So I'm going to plug their podcast. And a non-higher ed is a recommendation from my friend who works for Reuters because we talked and we nerded out about podcasts the other day. And he's recommended Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And it's a long, long form podcast. So like five hours in length. So if you're doing like marathon Whoa. running, half marathon, <laughs> you're driving a road trip, which is probably where I'm going to listen to more of these. I recommend it. And it gives a good insight to what history was, um, some key points about it, um, and different things about like Armageddon to uh, World Wars to the Kings. It's, it's interesting if you're a history nerd. So that's all I got. Oh, I did not know it was podcast recommendation time. Um, <laughs> so there's one, and gosh, I can't think of the name of it. Um, there's uh, one, though, that's out of uh, Stanford, I believe, called Hearsay Culture, mm-hmm. um, which is, is really good in terms of talking to people about issues of tech and education and the law. Um, that's the one I'd recommend. Uh, and I... Gosh, um, maybe we can put it in the show notes because there's one. It's a, it's a, what it's a, um, typically very short, right? So usually the the um, podcast is about eight to ten minutes long, but it's knockout, uh, and I, but I just can't remember the name of it right now. Hey, it's okay. I do the show notes after Jeff just talks about random things all the time, so I have to look things up for like two hours. So done. (laughs) I'll add it. Well, Chris, well, thank you so much. And we hope to have you back on again and we'll talk about whatever you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. We, we never even got to the anime discussion. We will. Um, yes. <laughs> but thank you. And, and a pleasure to meet you, Jeff. Thanks, Chris. All right. Take, take care. care. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Ciao.